commence, please, in verse 5. God continues speaking. And furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, first thing we see here is he will deliver them, but he will redeem them. Deliver and redeem are two different things, are two different things. Redemption should not be confused with deliverance. And many believers do that. People often associate deliverance in Christian circles with casting demons out of believers. Well, that's not what the scripture means by it. It's not what the scripture means. You don't see demons being cast out of Christians anywhere in the teaching of the apostles. You see demons cast out of unsaved people. Well, <clears throat> what is the distinction between deliverance and redemption in the lord's prayer we pray deliver us from evil okay in, in hebrew the lord's prayer well it actually was originally in aramaic the idea of deliverance is when the lord takes us out of adverse circumstances in the lord's prayer it is deliver us from evil that has the strong implication of the evil one, the evil one, Satan. But when the Lord gives us a way of escape from, from temptation, that is deliverance, okay? He's delivering us from evil. When he takes us out of adverse circumstances, that is deliverance. The rapture can be described <clears throat> as a deliverance, a rescue, okay? But what is redemption? Redemption is to buy back, to buy back. The Lord does not just take people out of adverse circumstances. He buys them back from the power of Satan, from the power of death. He buys them back with his own life. He ransoms our life. He buys back our life by giving his own. So there's deliverance and there's redemption. The two are associated, but they are not the equivalent of each other. <clears throat> and a distinction must be made between them. To be liberated or set free or given an escape from adverse circumstances, which could include temptation, deliver us from the evil one. That is deliverance. Okay. Redemption is something else. He buys us back. He buys us back. God can get us out of the tribulations of life. He can get somebody out of the tribulations of life. He can intervene on somebody's behalf. <clears throat> but what good is it <clears throat> if they go to hell anyway? <laughs> what good is it if they go to hell anyway? <clears throat> well, let's look. In my own life, I've had experiences where I believe the Lord both delivered me and redeemed me. Uh, I shouldn't say this in the public domain, but I did drug deals in North Africa, and I did drug deals in South America. And I almost got caught in Colombia. <clears throat> Have I been caught in Colombia? <laughs> you don't want to know what it would have been like. U.S. Customs are waiting for me in Miami. I got nailed in Miami. 
<clears throat> but not in Colombia. What would have happened if I got nailed in Colombia? I believe God had a purpose for my life, and he was protecting me even then. He was protecting me when I was bringing hashish from Morocco into, into Franco, Spain, at that time a dictatorship. He protected me when I was doing things in Panama and Colombia that I shouldn't. He <clears throat> delivered me. He, he, I, I was in a mess. I almost got nailed. They, they, I was within a hair breadth of being caught in, in, in El Dorado Airport in Bogota, Colombia. And I believe the Lord had his hand on me even then. But what good would it have been if he kept me out of prison in Colombia and I went to hell without Jesus? <laughs> deliverance is one thing. Thank God for deliverance. But praise God eternally for redemption. The two terms are not the same. And both need to be understood. Okay. Now, remember, the Exodus story foreshadows two things. According to 1 Corinthians 10, it foreshadows our salvation. And according to the book of Revelation, it foreshadows what's going to happen at the close of the age. But let's continue looking. Verse 7, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. My people. Israel and the Jews are the eternal people of God. Non-Jews who accept Jesus through the second birth are grafted in. They become a part of that people in a spiritual sense, according to the book of Ephesians. Let the stranger who joins himself to the Lord not be, say he's an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. They are grafted in in a spiritual sense. They become part of the people by adoption or by ingrafting in Romans, okay? But the people are Israel. The people are Israel. No other nation, no other ethnic nation are the people of God. Now, there is something else, though. There is children of God. Believers, irrespective of their ethnic or national background, can become children of God. The example that we've used in the past has been now King Charles, formerly Prince Charles. Prince Charles was the Prince of Wales, but there's nothing Welsh about him. His father was Greek, <coughs> or <clears throat> his mother was half Scottish and half Hanoverian German descent. He was not even a proper Englishman per se, ethnically, genetically, and he certainly was not Welsh. There wasn't a drop of Celtic blood in his veins. Yet he was the Prince of Wales. Why could somebody be the Prince of Wales who is not Welsh? simply because of birth, birth. Well, Christians can become the children of God by birth. In other words, second birth, second birth. <clears throat> now let's look at this. You will be my people. Look with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, that is Israel and the Jews, his own people, 
Those who were his own did not receive him. Some did, most did not, most still do not, although the numbers of those who do are increasing. But as many as received him, as many of who? Well, first of all, it's his own. He gave the right to become children of God. A Jew is automatically a, mem a member of the people of God simply because they're a Jew. But they're not a child of God unless they're born again. They're not a child of God unless they're born again. A non-Jew who accepts Jesus is co-equally a child of God as any Jew who believes. The people of God remain Israel and the Jews. We always point out replacement theology is a complete fabrication invented by the church in the post-Nicene patristic era. It's not the teaching of the New Testament. <clears throat> Largely, it's a teaching of the post-Nicene church fathers and after that. Well, let's look. <clears throat> You're my people. I'll be your God. You'll know I am the Lord God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And God continually identifies himself as that God for centuries. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Egypt, of course, in the New Testament, being a figure of the world. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Again, an ambiguous meaning. It has a literal national meaning for Israel and the Jews, the land in which they presently dwell. Again. But also, we're told that Abraham lived as a sojourner in it. He was looking for a city that was from God. That is not Jerusalem, but heavenly Jerusalem, Jerusalem from above. Israel, Jerusalem, geographically, nationally, have a specific meaning for Israel and the Jews that remains fixed in Scripture. But the ultimate purpose of God goes well beyond that. It speaks of eternity. It speaks of the millennial reign of Christ and eternity. It speaks beyond that. A city whose architect was God, we are told. That's what Abraham was really looking for. And he's the father of all who believed. Remember, Abraham was a non-Jew who God converted to be a Jew. Well, let's continue. <clears throat> I swore to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 8 is something that highlights the conflict between the Judeo-Christian faith of the Scripture and Islam. Islam said it's Ibrahim, Abraham, but it goes through Ishmael, whose descendants intermarried with the descendants of Esau. The Judeo-Christian scriptures say it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. Verse 9 very much highlights the conflict between the Judeo-Christian faith of the scripture and the Islamic faith of the Quran. Verse 10, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go. Now understand what's happening here. God predicted from the beginning he was going to have to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
But as we've been saying, God does not harden Pharaoh's heart until he hardens his own, as it were, in chapter 5. Before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Besides, I will not let Israel go. That was his attitude. God knew that was going to be his attitude. And God said, I'm going to harden his heart in response to his own attitude. But the text does not say that God hardened his heart until after this. In fact, at one place in chapter between this, and it's interesting, between the, after the sixth plague, that Pharaoh begins to fear God. But God has to harden his heart again in judgment. There's a point of no return. <laughs> Pharaoh should have repented much earlier, but of course God knew he wouldn't. God gives him over. Now, the fact that this happens after the sixth plague, that has something to do with what happens after the sixth seal, what happens after the sixth seal in Revelation. But I only mention that in passing, one being a shadow of the other. Let us continue. God says, let my people go, let them leave Egypt. Now, the first time, God says, let them go temporarily three days into the wilderness. Pharaoh says, no. And Pharaoh multiplies their judgments. He says, you have to make the same quota of bricks, but you also have to go gather your own straw. He made the conditions impossible. <clears throat> How does God respond? God responds the same way Pharaoh did, only multiple times more forcefully. Let us go for three days. No. Let us leave for good. Notice God ups the demand in response to Pharaoh. God ups his demand in response to the demands of Pharaoh. Pharaoh ups his demands. You can't go three days, and you must still make the same quantity of bricks, even though you have to gather your own straw. God responds. Now you're not just going to have to let them go three days. You're going to have to let them go permanently. God responds. On the basis of what Pharaoh does, God comes back and ups the ante. He plays Pharaoh's game against him. He makes demands that Pharaoh can't keep because Pharaoh put demands on the Hebrews that the Hebrews couldn't keep. How are we going to make the same quota of bricks when we don't have the straw and we have to gather the straw? He puts demands on the Hebrews that they couldn't keep, so God puts demands on Pharaoh that there's no way he could see himself as being ready to keep. Go tell Pharaoh in verse 11, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out. Now remember, when it says Pharaoh, it has a religious connotation and an idolatrous connotation. When it says king, 
It is a political connotation. Remember, Pharaoh is a major type of the Antichrist. He will be an idol. He will be a satanic idol, but he will be a political dictator. Pharaoh foreshadows him. Antichrist will try to keep the faithful believers in bondage the same way that Pharaoh tried to keep the Hebrews in bondage. One foreshadows the other. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. Even our own people are listening to me. How then is Pharaoh going to listen? I'm unskilled in speech. I have a speech impediment. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Notice that God does not just increase his demands on Pharaoh. He increases his demands on Pharaoh but he increases his commands on Moses and Aaron. Upon his adversaries, he increases his demands. Upon his own people, even in the face of adversity, he increases his commands. We need to remember that. These are the heads of their father's households, and it goes into a long, long rendition for the remainder of the chapter. Now, there are various reasons for this, but all of these households with their leaders will come into play through the rest of the sojourning over the 40-year period. They'll come into play in the Book of Numbers. They'll come into play throughout the Torah, okay? <clears throat> these are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanuk, also the same as Enoch in Hebrew, and Palu, Hezron and Kadmi. These are the families of Reuben and of the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Yamin, and Ochad and Yachin. Again, these names all mean things. Yachin means Yahweh's establishes. And uh, Yamin means right, right as in opposed to left. And Zohar and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman, these are the families of Simeon. Now notice something. The rabbis will determine Jewish identity based on maternal identity, if your mother was Jewish. The Torah based Jewish identity on paternal identity from the father. This is one of the many ways that rabbinic Judaism has distorted the Torah. Now, the New Testament, similar to Reformed Judaism, actually, accepts both. Accepts both. Timothy's was Paul circumcised Timothy. His mother was a Jew. Okay. The New Testament will accept either parent as a basis of Jewish identity. But the rabbis will only accept the mother but that's not so in the Torah. Again, if a Canaanite woman marries a Jew and she accepts the Jewish faith, that's it. 
They were son of a Canaanite. These are the families of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon and Kohat and Merari. The length of Levi's life was 137 years. Now, I should point out, of course, that usually halakhic Judaism will accept a Gentile woman who converts to Judaism as a Jew. They usually will accept it and give Jewish identity to the children. And fairness, I need to point that out. But let's look. Gershon and Kohat and Merari, uh, Merari, and the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Livni, and Shimai, according to their families. The sons of Kohat, Amran, and Ishar, and Hebron, and Uziel, my strength is God. And the length of Kohat's life was 133 years. Notice these people still had long longevity at that period by the lunar calendar. And the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. And Abram married his father's sister, Yochaved, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. Now it's telling the life of these people <clears throat> to let you know in part that they were still the generation that were in the wilderness. They were still the generation that were in the wilderness, okay? The sons of Ishar, they, they would have died in the wilderness. The sons of Ishar, Korach and Nefeg and Zichri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael and Elzaphan and Sitri. <clears throat> and Aaron married Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nachshon, and she bore him Nadab and Abiyahu. These are the priests, the sons of Aaron, who would die tragically. Eliezer and Itamar. And the sons of Korach. Korach would later feature in the rebellion. Asir and Elkanah and Abiyasaf. And my father shall add, these are the families of the Korachites. And Aaron's son, Eliezer, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas, Pincus. Now, we have a teaching called the zeal of Phineas, and how Phineas was able to stop the plague because of his faithfulness and his courage. These are the heads of the father's household of the Levites, according to their families. This is a priestly family. Again, it's showing these families and their heads because they come into play later on in the Exodus sojourn for good and for bad. In the sense, case of Phineas, it's obviously for good. It was the same for Aaron and Moses in verse 26, to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. And they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt it was the same Moses and Aaron. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I'm unskilled in speech. 
How then will I, will Pharaoh listen to me? He keeps saying that same thing. He says it multiple times. He kept pointing to his own handicap, his own disability, his own inadequacy. Moses was the most humble man in Israel because he was acutely aware of his own inadequacy. Despite being a prince of Egypt, he had an inadequacy. The Lord's strength is always magnified in our weakness. The Lord allowed him to have that handicap to humble him because the Lord exalts those who are humble. The Lord exalts those who are humble. Why didn't God heal, just heal Moses' speech impediment? God could do that. God is, is a supernatural elocutionist. He could have easily fixed Moses' stuttering or lisp or whatever he had. Easily, but he didn't. No, God allowed it to build the character of Moses that despite his background as a prince of Egypt and despite the fact he would be a type of Christ and that the Torah would be given through him and that he would actually see God as the angel of the Lord, despite all these things, God allowed him to be humble, humbled by an inadequacy, in part, at least, that was a major component or reason for his inadequacy, his sense of self-deprecation even. God can only use somebody who is aware of their own inadequacy that they don't think they can do it in their own strength according to their own intellect or their own background or their own means. Moses had all that. He was a prince of Egypt. He had plenty of things that, humanly speaking, would seem to be assets to make someone a great leader. And God did use those things. Moses was trained in the wisdom of Pharaoh before he was trained in the wisdom of God. That is true. However, God had to magnify his own power through Moses, not Moses based on his background as a prince. He had to keep Moses humble. We see the same kind of thing with Paul. We don't know what it was. There are different speculations and theories what the thorn in his flesh was, and the devil used it to, 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 to oppress him. The devil used it to oppress him. And he asked God three times to take it away, and God wouldn't. I don't know of anybody who God uses mightily who does not have some kind of thorn, some weakness, some vulnerability some inadequacy of self. In Moses' case, we know what it was, a speech impediment. In Paul's case, we don't know what it was. But the more God uses somebody, the more danger there is of spiritual pride and self-reliance instead of God-reliance. God may not, may not heal or cure or remove 
a handicap or a disability or a vulnerability. He may not remove a pain that we carry until we've achieved his purposes. Now, in the millennial reign of Christ, Moses will not have a lisp, and Paul will not have a thorn in his flesh. And no matter what we've got, we're not going to have it when Jesus comes back in the millennial reign. And we're certainly not going to have it in eternity. But for now, sometimes there are things God just does not cure. God just does not heal. God just does not deliver us from. He leaves us in it, but gives us the grace to cope with it. But he always has a reason. Remember, the more God uses somebody, the more susceptible they are to spiritual pride and self-sufficiency. God must keep us humble. We all have an old nature. Even men like Moses and Paul were not exceptions. And if Moses and Paul were not exceptions, neither are you or I. But let's look continually. <clears throat> now, not all of the tribes and all of the families are named in the closing half of chapter 6 of Exodus. It's focused on the families and individuals that emerge as important in the historical events following the Exodus. What would happen in the wilderness for those 40 years during the sojourning? It doesn't name every tribe, every family. It names the ones that would be of some significance, like the sons of Aaron, or like Phineas, or like Korach. It names the ones that would be of some significance, particularly among the Levitical tribe, the priestly tribe, particularly among them. Okay, That's the reason it's there. Let's continue now, chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I will make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, it doesn't say he's going to make him God, but as God, as God. Moses wrote to the daughters of Israel, your husband's voice shall be the voice of God to you. If a Christian husband tells his wife to do something that is unscriptural or immoral or illegal or, or just insane, God does not want us to go against his word. No Christian husband would walking with the Lord would tell his wife to do something sinful. And in those cases, she has a right to refuse. But you have to understand, the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. If a Christian wife is not going to do what her husband asks her to do, now she can talk to him and explain her reasons, and he should be patient and listen to her counsel. God speaks to the counsel of, of, of praying wives. But the final decision is his. It is the voice of God to you. That doesn't mean it's the infallible voice of God, but it means he's God's authority. So Moses is God's authority. God would give the Torah through Moses. 
God would speak through Moses. And Aaron will be his prophet. Now remember, look at this. A prophet of God never speaks for himself. A prophet of God never speaks for herself. To speak prophetically and give your own opinion or your own perspective as if it's a divine revelation is very wrong and it, and it, and it, and it's false it's false someone who does that will wind up in false prophecy guaranteed they will wind up becoming a proven false prophet guaranteed a prophet cannot speak for themselves if you're going to give an opinion qualify it and say it's an opinion A teacher cannot speak for themselves. A teacher of God's word cannot speak for themselves. As we see in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul gave a sanctified opinion, he pointed out, this is my opinion. Now that does not mean it's not canonical, what he said, or does not have doctrinal meaning, but the doctrine it's teaching is we can't base doctrine on our own opinion even though paul certainly had a sanctified wisdom in the issues he was addressing in first corinthians 7 concerning marriage a teacher of god's word and someone in a prophetic ministry has no right to speak for themselves in god's name and has no right to use god's name to speak for themselves they have to be very careful to qualify when they're speaking prophetically. And that's assuming they are genuinely someone called to a prophetic ministry. Remember, false prophets outnumber true prophets, sometimes hundreds to one, as we saw in uh, the days of Micaiah and Ahab. We see the same pattern in the book of Jeremiah, and in the last days, it's the same. False prophets outnumber true ones. One, one of the characteristics of a true prophet will be they do not speak in their own name. They do not issue any kind of a decree, thus saith the Lord, unless the Lord hath said it. Aaron couldn't say anything that God didn't tell Moses. Aaron couldn't say anything that God didn't tell Moses. You shall speak all that I command in verse 2. You and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of the land. Now God ups the ante. Not three days. Let him leave. And then God's going to up the ante further. Give him all your money before they go. <laughs> Don't try to double-cross God. 
He's a very skilled negotiator, and he's going to come out on top, and you're going to get nothing if you go against him. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I might multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. This tells us something about Romans chapter 9, that Pharaoh is a corporate solidarity. He's not just a person, but he is the personification, the embodiment of Egypt. He's the personification, the embodiment of Egypt, of the nation. Okay, this is important when we read Romans 9, but I only mention that again in passing. Verse 4, when Pharaoh will not listen to you, he's not going to listen. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts. Now that word hosts of a oat. You heard the term Adonai Sevaot. Hosts means armies. Armies. Lord God of hosts, Lord God of the armies, angelic armies. Okay. I will bring out my hosts. My people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. Now notice, Sebaot, Adonai Sebaot. It's interesting because it's, it's female in Hebrew. Sebaot, we translated hosts. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8 tells us there's no discharge from war. When someone is born again, they have enlisted in God's army. He has both angelic armies and he has evangelistic armies. He has a Christian physical literal army. His people, Israel, were his army. Same as his angels or his army. We are in an army. Paul makes reference to this. He speaks of Christians as being soldiers. Okay. And we go where we're sent and so forth, the same as someone in military service. That's the way it is. God may call you to relocate. He may call you to a mission field. Whatever it is, we are in an army. We follow orders. Except that unlike human generals, God never makes a mistake. And ultimately, we're guaranteed the victory. A battle may seem to be lost, but the war ultimately is won. Christ cannot be defeated. We are guaranteed we are going to win the war if we stay in Christ. But we're in an army. Israel was to be his army. We are his army, Paul tells us. Okay. The Lord is going to do this. Bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now that foreshadows Revelation chapter 6, the rapture. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did, and Moses was 80 years old 
and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Think of that. I turned 70 today. God does not view retirement the way the world does. He has a different view. When someone is younger, physically, biologically younger, and they're a Christian, well, they've got children to put through college. They've got a business to run. They have a profession or a trade. They're caught up in the demands of temporal life in a, in a temporal society. That's not to say that they shouldn't have Christ at the center of their lives and all these things. They should. But God sees retirement differently. Congratulations on your retirement. Until now, you worked for me part-time. Now you work for me full-time. <laughs> you think of what David, Jacob, Moses, the Apostle John, they're the trees that the scripture says brings forth good sap in old age. There is no discharge from war in Ecclesiastes. As long as your health allows you, we continue serving the Lord. I think of people like Anna in Luke's nativity narrative. She was a widow all those years. She'd been married for seven, but a widow for 37. <laughs> and all she did was pray and, and serve God in the temple. What a beautiful picture of what a little old Christian lady should be. <laughs> that was her full-time gig. It was her, her raison d'etre. It's why she existed. There are little old ladies who pray for me and for our ministry. They look frail. They look fragile. They look... They look like what they are biologically, but spiritually, they're dynamos. They pray. We get little old ladies and little old men, people on pensions who don't have much. And they will send five or ten pounds and say, please use this to take care of orphans in India or to bring the gospel to Israel, to the Jews. That rotten $5 or 10 bucks or, or 10 pounds, that's like 100 to somebody else. They're not giving 5 or 10 pounds or 5 or $10. They're giving themselves. These are powerful people with powerful prayers. They have a mission. If you want to know why God uses some of the people he uses, it's because of the people who pray for them. It's because of the little old ladies like Anna 
You see a pastor, I've said this before, and God is blessing him and the church is growing and so forth. Praise God for that. But it's that little old lady who washes the church steps every Saturday. <laughs> when we get to heaven, we're going to find out the secret of their success. God does not see old age and retirement the way the world does. Remember, in the world, the older you get, the less you have to live for. In the world, the older you get, the less you have to live for. In Christ, the older you get, the more you have to live for. In the world, the older you get, the more of your life is on back of you. In Christ, the older you get, the more of your life is before you, in front of you. It's completely different than the world. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians allowing themselves to be polluted in their minds with the world's perspective of old age and retirement. God's perspective is the opposite of the world's. God's perspective is the opposite of the world's. Eighty. He was just, he's 80. He just gets going. <laughs> Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, work a miracle. So you got a wicked king who wants to see a miracle. Who does that sound like? Another type of the Antichrist, Herod, isn't it? Put on a show. Put on a show. Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men, the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. There is a power in the occult that is not simply demonic. It may be satanic. And with the Antichrist and false prophet, it will be. They will counterfeit the miracles of Moses and his witnesses, just as Pharaoh's magicians did. This is a type of what the Antichrist and false prophet will do. Very briefly, look with me, please, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 13.
Verse 13, and he performs great signs. He even makes fire come down from heaven. In other words, he's mimicking Elijah. He's mimicking, the Antichrist and false prophet are mimicking the two witnesses of the Lord in Revelation 11, one of whom is obviously at least one in the spirit of Elijah, character of Elijah. The way that Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing, they're mimicking. Well, the way that Pharaoh's magicians mimicked is the way the Antichrist and false prophet are going to mimic, mimic. But that's not to say there is not literal supernatural things taking place, turning a stick into a snake. It's just that God's serpent ate theirs. The world has magic. God has divinity. The world has magic arts. Moses and Aaron had access to the power of God. Now let's look at these magicians. What else does the New Testament tell us about them? Look with me, please, to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without control, without self-control. Ikrete, they have no self-control, which proves things like Toronto and Pensacola were counterfeit revivals. People are out of control. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and here's liberal theology, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's, that's the World Council of Churches. Avoid men such as these. It goes on. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So often women get sucked in. Not only women, but so often women. Remember, women are by fallen nature more vulnerable to spiritual seduction than men. Men have other problems, insensitivity. Women are more vulnerable to spiritual seduction than men. Now look at this. Verse 8, as Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards to the faith. But they'll make not make further progress. Their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Jonas and Jambres are pictures of those who come to deceive Christians with signs and wonders. Now, we also know there are pretended signs and wonders. But there are signs and wonders. So many people have been taken in by money-preaching con artists. We've talked about this many times. What you are seeing, these people who do this, 
the wicked and adulterous generation seeking a sign. These people who do this are in the character of Jonas and Jambres. That were the names of Pharaoh's magicians. And they foreshadow the Antichrist and false prophet. Remember, many nominal, false, and backslidden Christians are going to follow the Antichrist and false prophet. I'll say it again. Many nominal, false, and backslidden Christians will follow the Antichrist and false prophet. Paul warns. There's people like Jonathan John Bray's in the church. Let's look. I will bring you out of Egypt. It's going to happen. Pharaoh's not going to listen. But I will bring you out of Egypt in verse 4. Then I will lay hands on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. God is going to bring them out because he's going to shake the power of the world, of Egypt. Egypt is going to know it. We are told the Egyptians shall know in verse 5. You see that? Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians will know when I bring you out. The Egyptians will know I did it. We don't base doctrine on type. You know that. But typology does illustrate doctrine. The Exodus is a picture of our salvation coming through the water to the promised land covered by the blood of the Lamb, and so forth, but it is a picture of the rapture. Those same judgments we see here in Exodus take place in Revelation. As you know, still commemorated in the Paschal Seder. Hosha, darkness, dam, blood, frogs, fadaya, etc. They bring Joseph's bones with them out of Egypt because the dead in Christ will rise first. We come out together. The Exodus is a future event. In fact, the Paschal Seder closes with Shana Habab Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem. The Lord will be worshipped in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, in the millennial reign, according to Zechariah, and, of course, the heavenly Jerusalem forever. But let's look. The Egyptians are going to know it. Does that seem like a secret? Let's look. To Matthew 24. Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation. Now the tribulation is not the full seven years. It is the portion of the seven years that precedes the wrath. The wrath of God begins with the seventh seal. The trumpet judgments, that begins the wrath. They culminate with the vile judgments. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, 
and the tribes of the earth will mourn. And he'll send his angels to gather the elect. That is obviously the rapture. Taken literally and on face value. Look with Revelation chapter 1, please. Verse 7, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, that refers to the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Look at it. I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They'll look upon me, Jesus, whom they have pierced, and mourn as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. And that day there'll be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And all the land's going to mourn, the people are going to mourn. And then Antichrist will make his final desperate attack. Does that sound like a secret? They'll look upon him? Every eye shall see him. Now, Revelation tells us what Zechariah means. Revelation tells us directly what Zechariah means. When the Jews look upon him who they have pierced, Revelation tells us that every eye is going to see him, those who pierced him. It won't just be the Jews. It'll be every eye. Does that sound like a secret rapture? Does Matthew 24 seem like a secret rapture? Does Zechariah 12 seem like a secret rapture? And of course, the book of Joel. I'll display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Same things as in Exodus and in Revelation. Blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's speaking about the same event. The sun is darkened. The sign in the sky. Forget the rubbish of a secret rapture. The rapture is only secret in that we do not know the day or the hour. But when it happens, it's not going to be a secret. This nonsensical invention came from a 15-year-old hyper-Pentecostal girl named Margaret MacDonald who'd been in the Irvingite movement. She was at the power court conferences twice where she met John Nelson Darby. She had prophesied there'd be a secret rapture. And then Darby began teaching it, although Darby's followers claim he didn't get it from her. They have to admit he met her at the power court meetings in Dublin and that she believed it before he did. Make of it what you will. 
the idea of a secret rapture is a lot of baloney. It's not going to be a secret. They're going to say, hide us from the one who's coming. They'll hide in the rocks. It'll be a desperate showdown. No, it's not going to be like that. Every eye will see. Every eye will see. Now, there is, as it were, a terrestrial coming, a third coming that will be terrestrial, not only in the sky. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's something different at the end of the seven years. However, the rapture occurs, as we've said many times, between the sixth and seventh seal. And when it happens, it's not going to be this idea where these people go, where do they disappear, what's happened to them. It's not going to be like that. They're going to know. The Egyptians knew. The tribes of the earth shall mourn. The tribes of the earth shall mourn. Zechariah, they'll mourn. Revelation, they'll mourn. They'll look upon it. Now, this is prefigured, foreshadowed by the Exodus. God told Moses that when this happens, the Egyptians are going to know that it was me who did it. When I get you out of here, they're going to know who got you out of here. And that same God says to us concerning the rapture, when I get you out of here, the world is going to know who got you out of here. That's the way it was. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope we will see you next Thursday. God bless.